0: Have you ever been to the Cannes Film Festival? And I said, no. And he said, well, you will this year.
1: I went to Cannes, I think, 10 years in a row or 10 out of 11 years, something like that. And, and then I looked at my daughter and I realized I was gonna have to pay college tuition, so I stopped going. It was a good trade. Minus mm-hmm. 10, nine, eight, seven, six, mm-hmm. five. and one small mm-hmm.
2: step. One eyewitness. One major pop cultural event. You had to be there, uncover stories that shed light on our most iconic moments. Like the
3: real enemy.
2: Each week, a different host takes on the task of finding and interviewing one person within 48 hours who was there with no idea what their event will be. Come join the ride.
4: Adam, it's Webb from High Bar. Are you ready for your assignment? Hi, Webb. I'm ready. Adam, your assignment for this episode of You Had to Be There is to find an interview someone who was at Cannes in 1994 when Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or. You have 48 hours. I know it's the weekend, but I'm confident you'll find someone who is at Cannes. Good luck.
3: My name is Adam Carp. I am a 25-year-old producer, director, and executive assistant based in California. I work mainly in documentaries and am an occasional helping hand on podcasts. I met Julia Thompson while working on a documentary series in rural Mississippi. Hey, Julia.
5: Hey, how's it going?
3: Good. So I'm, I'm
5: having my coffee. How
3: is it? Great. So my biggest lead is that there's a UCLA professor who I didn't have, but my friend had him. And he directed a movie that was at Cannes the same year. Oh, amazing. Yeah, And Tarantino's in that movie, too.
5: Oh, cool. I, I was worried about the weekend thing, but, you know, if you get the interview and you can't do the interview until next week, we just integrate that into the episode. So yeah. no matter what, if you know, just keep going. That UCLA professor sounds really interesting and promising.
3: It's promising, yeah. If I could find his office hours and just bombard him on next week. No, I'm kidding.
5: Yeah, well, no, I think you can actually just... I have a feeling you'll get to him this
3: weekend. You know that YouTube clip? It's like a scene of Tarantino talking about the queer reading of Top Gun? Yeah, I do. It's from this movie called Sleep With Me that's directed by this guy named Rory Kelly, and it premiered at Cannes the same year, and Rory Kelly's a UCLA professor now. So I emailed him. Oh, wow. In 2022, when the sequel to Top Gun came out and was the biggest movie of the summer... A clip went viral on YouTube and Twitter of Quentin Tarantino explaining how Top Gun is secretly about homosexuality. That clip is from a party scene in Sleep With Me. Later in the year, the film Tar came out, and its director Todd Field happened to be the guy in that scene that Quentin was talking to, or talking at, depending on how you look at it. So Sleep With Me was suddenly in the conversation without anyone realizing they were talking about this specific movie. To date, the YouTube clip has 1.2 million views, and in a way, it's almost become the lasting legacy, or at least part of it, for Sleep With Me.
2: You know what one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? What? Top Gun. Oh, come on. Top, Top Gun up? is fucking great. What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots? Yeah, it's about a bunch of guys waving their dicks around. It is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. <laughs> That's it. That is what
3: Top Gun is about, man. Sleep With Me is a low-budget dramedy about a couple that gets married, and on the day before the wedding, the bride tells the groom's best friend that he could have been the one marrying her. It's a sharply written and enjoyable film, and while it hasn't stayed in the zeitgeist the way something like Pulp Fiction has, it's an enjoyable movie notable for its cast of characters, including Parker Posey and Todd Field. Professor Rory Kelly.
0: The thing was, I had a refrigerator full of
3: 60 millimeter film because
0: I knew people like Kodak and they can't sell dented cans of film. And sometimes they get dented in shipping or because somebody drops one. And so every week for a very long time, I would just call and ask if they had any film. And if they did, I would go over and pick up a couple of cans and then put it in my fridge.
3: That's hilarious.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, the way the film started is the year El Mariachi played at Sundance, the original version, and it was kind of thrilling for people. And my friend was there with a movie and he called me up and he said, you got to get here. Right. And so, You know, there's this film, El Mariachi. He did this little budget thing. he talks about it at the screenings. Um, so I just got on a plane and went, even though I didn't have money.
3: El Mariachi is the first feature by director Robert Rodriguez. It was made on a budget of $7,000 and was an unprecedented success taking Sundance by storm.
0: And then after the festival, I met with a friend of mine, Roger Hedden. He's one of the screenwriters on it. And we just had lunch and we said, what do we want to make a movie about? Right. He was like, you got to come up with a low budget idea. You've got all that film. Let's do it. So I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to do a riff on The Great Gatsby where every scene is either a party or people going to a party and he said well that's interesting because i've always had a story i only know the beginning of the story but a guy kisses his best friend's fiance on the day before their wedding and then it sort of goes from there and i was like okay well that's what happens and then all of the conflict will play out at these uh, party scenes and and in some uh, car scenes if we need them and so then he and i started writing the script And we came to this decision, like, we could do this much faster if we had all of our friends write sections of the film, right? Because it's episodic. And so I met with everybody individually. We made a list of people we wanted to work with. And so I just gave everybody the major plot points for their section of the film. And then everybody wrote. And literally within a matter of, I don't think it could have been more than two weeks and it might have been less, we had an entire script.
3: So how long was the shoot then?
0: The shoot was 21 days, three weeks, which was a pretty standard shooting schedule back then. You shoot six days a week. And since each sequence was kind of lengthy, we mostly got to stay at the same locations for uh, multiple days, which saves you a lot of time because you don't have to move the whole company to another location every night. And you get to leave your equipment set up at the end of the day and just pick up the next day.
3: So how did the Tarantino cameo come about? Oh,
0: we had a mutual friend and I went out to dinner with him and a friend of his, she was a French actress. She's the woman in Kill Bill who gets her arms and legs cut off. He was in pre-production for Pulp Fiction at the time. Oh, that's why we had dinner. He wanted to be in the movie. Right? So I said to him, well, the whole movie's cast. And he said, oh, well, I heard it's a movie about a bunch of parties. Can't I just go to one of the parties? Uh, Which I thought was a funny idea. And so we put a line in the script. We gave him a dialogue. It just said Quentin, right? And then instead of writing any dialogue, we just said, he says something funny. So then on the day that he was in the scene, he came to set. There was nothing prepared, right? But he had that Top Gun story in mind, um and so while i was doing stuff he kind of followed me around you know not like he was my inferior just like it was the easiest way to uh, do it and he did the whole thing for me and it was very funny but it was also super long so i said quentin that's it you just have to do a shorter version of it i left it up to him to figure out how to do the shorter version and i actually think it makes it funnier because there's a bunch of non sequiturs in it. Like he just suddenly says, they're gay. And so that worked out really well. And we only shot with him for like five or six hours. And then he went home. Yeah, that's how he got in the film. I want to go to one of the parties. And so we did it. He really wanted to be an actor back then too, even more than he is now. Like I think he wanted to be in a lot of movies. It's funny.
3: So he was in pre-production. Like had you heard rumblings about his movie at all?
0: Oh, yeah. It was already like a big deal. Okay, It was
3: already like a big deal. Um, He
0: actually lost financing at one point because the script was like 170 pages. I forget who the first production company was, but they pulled out, and that's when Miramax moved in. They just jumped on it in five seconds. And it was interesting because his pre-production overlapped with our shooting, and we had the same DP, Andre Sukula. And so... Lawrence Bender the producer and other people kept coming to set to talk to Andre while we were actually shooting and then we were on night shoots at the end and Andre was in pre-production all day long so he was, he was literally sleeping 2 hours a night and you know he would tell the gaffer what he wanted in terms of lighting and then he would go take a nap in his car <laughs>
3: Had you read the script or just heard about it?
0: Yeah, it was top secret. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was being distributed outside of people who were working on the film. You know, I knew some of what it was about, because I'm mm-hmm. sure he told me. But yeah, that script was not
3: circulating. Did Andre say more or was he just exhausted the whole time?
0: Yeah, he didn't say much about it, too, which leads me to believe that, you know, they were telling people not to tell
3: other people about it. Most scripts are kept under lock and key in Hollywood, and for people to have heard rumblings about Pulp Fiction even before cameras started rolling means it must have been pretty buzzy. So, the film got into can. What was your screening like, your first screening, and how was the reception?
0: You know, it was fantastic. Um, It really played well. People liked it so much, so this actually kind of surprised me. But the demand to see the film was quite high, and a lot of people didn't get into the screening. And this was really unusual. They added a second screening on Saturday morning at 8 or 9 in the morning. It was not in the main theater that time. It was for the first screening. I think it's the Palais. I'm so bad with remembering things. I think, anyway, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the first screening. The other screening was in a different theater. It was not a small theater, but it was packed to the gills at like, you know, on a Saturday morning. There were people sitting in the aisles.
3: Did Quinton come to your screening? Yeah,
0: he did. And he was really into it. And then also, I heard through the grapevine that when he got to Paris after the festival, he went to see it at a theater there as well to see what the audience reaction was in Paris. I think he really liked what he did in the film, which is fine, like you should like what you do, right? And he also came to work in progress screenings that we did. So he was a part of the film. He was one of the group of 10 people
3: who were really most involved in the film. So were you at the first screening of his movie there or one of the screenings?
0: Yeah, I was there the night it premiered. It was easy for me to get tickets to things because the French publicist and the French distributor would take care of things like that. So I got into the Pulp Fiction screening. It was an interesting screening, but I was a little horrified because there's this custom at the Cannes Film Festival, which is if you don't like a film, when you get up to leave, you have to slam your seat. So, the director knows that you're leaving. I don't like it. Yeah. It's really kind of rude, but it's part of the culture of the festival. And so, at a certain point in the screening, I was totally engrossed in the film and it was very popular. But at a certain point in the screening, you know, you hear like one person slams their seat and then another person slams their seat. And it's like 20 seat slams in a row. There was not a big group of people walking out, but the 20 or so who left you know, made sure that everybody knew that they were leaving. And I was cringing and wincing because, like, this is not fair. You're such a minority. You know, who cares?
3: Cannes is sort of the emblem for glitz and glamour for film outside of the Oscars and the premiere launching pad for movies of a certain caliber. It's exclusive and competitive, and there's a lot to the aura around the way people applaud or even bemoan the movies that premiere there. It has a different reputation than Sundance and Telluride. One might even call it a little bit snobby. Historically, not a lot of American movies win it. Going into the 1994 festival, it's safe to say that Krzysztof Kieslowski's Three Colors Red was the favorite to win the Palme d'Or, which is what they call the grand prize. Red was the highly anticipated final entry in a trilogy that was already beloved in its time and is found on many best films of all times lists today. Both fiction's triumph is notable, as a violent and rebellious American movie is not exactly what one would expect to win over the elite French audiences. Were you, like, instantly kind of blown away by it, or how did you react?
0: I was blown away by it. And then, I, of course, I saw it again when it opened in theaters. But yeah, I thought it was something remarkable because of the structure of it. And you know John Travolta being in the film and a really fresh movie, you know, and the, all the dialogue he was able to pull off in the film. That's why the script was 170 pages. But to me, it's all very entertaining to listen to.
1: But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is what? It's a little different. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in
2: Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer.
1: And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it
3: uh, Royale with cheese. What do you think about Pulp Fiction?
5: I love Pulp Fiction. It's actually my favorite Tarantino movie.
3: Producer Julia Thompson. Really?
5: Yeah, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan. So Mm -hmm. I did like the Reservoir Dogs, and I like the newest one, actually. I like the newest
3: one a lot, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
5: Yeah. I like Pulp Fiction because of Travolta Mm -hmm. and just his comeback. That whole story is... Other than him being a Scientologist, I was very happy for him. Stephen Prince, who I interviewed for my subject. Yeah. You know, his story is in that, too, so I think I like it. And the soundtrack is amazing.
3: His stories in Pulp Fiction?
5: Yeah. You know the Uma Thurman scene? Yeah. The resuscitation. Yeah, yeah. That's from a scene in Scorsese's documentary, American Boy. Oh, really? Yeah. So he tells a story about that happening to him not him he had to save somebody so i'm pretty sure tarantino got that idea from from that movie
3: stephen prince is just a recurring character and uh, (laughs) you had to be
5: there yeah i hope so he's so amazing
3: he's in every episode somehow oh cool
5: but what else about pulp fiction i yeah i really what do you think of it
3: i was like never allowed to see it growing up because my parents like didn't like it they like told the story like they had to see what the fuss was about and like got to the theater, the Sherman Oaks Theater, and they could only sit in the front row. They didn't find it funny. Like it was just too violent for them, but they've like since come around on it. Yeah. Like when I watched it with my dad growing up, he was like, oh, you gotta hand it to it. It's pretty good.
5: So what, when did they actually let you watch it?
3: Uh, Probably like eighth grade, but like I had heard so much. You get the movie through cultural prognosis, but then you watch it and it's still, So exciting and fresh.
5: Yeah, no, that's totally true. Like
3: he's never been like my guy, you know, Tarantino. Like I'm never like, oh, he's like my favorite director. Because I feel like so many people say that and it's like, oh I felt
5: similarly about the band. I was like, I don't care about the band. I mean, not that you don't care, like you respect him as a filmmaker, but
3: I respect him and I think all his influences are cool, but he's never been like well it's
5: also we're in a time period where people are like looking back at his influences. And then if you watch his influences, they're, some of them I feel like are better. You know what I mean?
3: <laughs> oh yeah, like Lady yeah, like Kill Bill. And yeah, I mean like all of his movies are so tied to that era, but that's cool. Like I just read his book, Cinema Speculation, where he talks about like his mom taking him to movies in the 70s and it was sweet.
5: Aww. Webb was saying too that he has a podcast. Have you listened to it?
3: I haven't because I find his voice annoying. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, I have any, I don't really like talk podcast. I like more, like more long form. Yeah,
3: like like this podcast.
5: Like this podcast.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Webb, it's Adam. I just recorded an interview with this guy named Howie Mopsovitz. How was it? It was great. I mean, he had a lot to say. He definitely remembers being at Cannes. At, he had a press badge, so he went to the first press screening of it.
1: There was a lot of anticipation about this film about Pulp Fiction. Because, you know, Reservoir Dogs, it had been pretty good, but it had a lot of nerve. Here it comes. The film (laughs) critics are already saying will have audiences laughing, gasping, and applauding at the same time. It's, It's freaky, but it happens. Pulp Fiction. I always figured, and maybe I'm overrating myself, I always figured I was like a B-plus critic, you know, in, in terms of the social status of critics. I was critic for the Denver Post, and I also often, at the end of the festival did a, um, a two-way with Bob Edwards, who was the <clears throat> morning edition host on NPR. I loved going to Cannes, and I liked it better than most of my critic buddies who, you know, who lived on the coasts, because they got to run into filmmakers and see you know, see films before anybody else routinely. But in Colorado, I
3: didn't, so it was like going out into the big, wide world, and I loved it. And plus, Cannes is great pizza. In 2018, I attended the Telluride Film Festival as part of the Student Symposium. The Student Symposium is a program started in the late 1980s by Denver Post film critic Howie Moffiewicz. And so at
1: Cannes, I remember talking to my critic friends about, you know, what Tarantino was up to and stuff like that. Nobody thought he was the great boy genius, but people thought that he had a lot of promise and Reservoir Dogs had been really, you know, provocative and fun, in a, you know, in that Tarantino way. So the press screening was at night. Which meant that there are two large theaters in the what's called the Palais Palais des Festivals at Cannes. And the morning screening was the bigger theater, but the evening press screening it, it was in the salle debussy, you know, I mean, it probably held two thousand people or something like that, you know, and I knew it would be full, and I knew that I should go early. but During the afternoon, I went to talk to a guy named Mark Ehrman, U-R-M-A-N. Mark died a couple of years ago. At the time, he was a publicist. And as I recall, he was the representative of the festival for English-speaking press. Mark was an incredible publicist. I remember talking to him. He said, you know, I never lie. I said, I know you don't. He said, that's really important to me. He said that I never lie you know, which is not necessarily the rule among a lot of publicists. I went to see him and I said, Mark, what do you know about this film? And he had seen it and he said, I can tell you two things. And I said, yeah, he said, it's 20 minutes too long and it isn't about anything at all. Mark really was a brilliant guy, and he was incredibly articulate. And I thought, God, what a way to put it. And after I saw the film, I thought he was absolutely right. You know, it was 20 minutes too long, and it isn't about anything at all. As I recall, there were some people who walked out because the violence really got to them. But for the most part, I think the audience responded very positively to the film. People really loved it. But were sort of the people I knew, at least— They were not embarrassed, but surprised that they liked it so much and found it so funny. You know, I mean, a lot of us were, you know, sort of good political lefties of, you know, various stripes. We believed that people should behave themselves and that violence was a bad thing. But, you know, and that films that were overly violent were probably not a good thing for the world. But I mean, I remember just breaking out in laughter at times. And also, I mean, I don't know if you remember the first time you saw it, but sort of, exclamations just coming out like, oh, and um, my wife was with me. And, you know, she doesn't like violent films at all. But at one point, I mean, she just cracked up. Tarantino really at that time certainly had that balance between horrifying you and really tickling you and getting you where you didn't expect it. And so there were a lot of unexpected sounds coming out of people during the film. And I think sounds that surprised the people themselves, you know, I mean, I remember being surprised that I laughed at something or other. You know, a day or so later, I interviewed Tarantino. And first of all, he would changed a lot in two years. He was far more polished, of course. And he was far more savvy about the PR game.
3: See, so he had gotten media training. He wasn't.
1: Yes. Have you ever been to Cannes? I haven't. I
3: mean, the first time I interviewed him, it was outside on sort
1: of, you know, a deck or something like that at the Palais, you know, and you could see the harbor and stuff. It was nice. And, you know, I don't know, we talked for quite a long time and it was very casual. And then the interviews for Pulp Fiction were indoors at sort of round tables. As I recall, I didn't have, you know, 45 minutes, you had 15 minutes, something. And Roger Ebert had interviewed him before me and Roger and I were... I mean, we were friends for 45 years. At that point, of course, it hadn't been 45 years. And he just said, he said, do you mind if I sit in? And I said, no, of course not. No, he was my friend. I remember asking Tarantino about the women in the film. And he looked at me blankly. like He had no idea what I was asking about. And I remember asking it a couple of ways. Memory is, you know, as you know, weird. And I think I was asking him about why the women sort of had to bear how do I say this the women were judgmental as I recall and I asked him why was it the women who sort of had to carry that burden and he looked at me like he didn't know what the hell I was talking about and I realized that he's not an introspective guy at least he wasn't then you know, I've you know, haven't encountered him since. This guy has seen every film ever made. But he's not, I don't think, an introspective man. And and I think my question really sort of buffaloed him. You know, and he wasn't hiding anything. You know, I mean I found him very open and all that, but I think he just didn't get what I was talking about.
3: That brings to mind, I don't I don't know how well you remember your review, but you have a quote about the women living in a boys' fantasy world. Oh,
1: yeah. Okay. Well, you've read that review a lot more recently than I have. (laughs) You know, so I asked him something about that. And he really, I mean, I think quite honestly didn't get the question. Mm -hmm. You remember Linda Williams? Yeah. Um, Linda told me one time that she was in a panel at UCLA. And she said there was some guy in the back of the room I don't remember what the panel was about, but she said, this guy kept saying, oh, have you seen such and such? Have you seen such and such? And nobody else had seen the films he was asking about. In a break, she said to the person next to her, who is that? And they said, oh, that's Quentin Tarantino. You know, my sense is that he he's seen more movies than any 10 people on the planet and remembered them. But I think he's not introspective. And that was interesting to me. I agreed with Mark Ehrman entirely. I thought the film was 20 minutes too long and it wasn't about anything at all. I think Quentin Tarantino is just masterful at setting up a sequence. But I think his films don't have much emotional depth or intellectual depth. But boy, you know, he's really got technique, knows where to put the camera. Duh.
3: (laughs) Back to the interview with Rory Kelly.
0: I was at the final awards thing. I wasn't supposed to be there. I was going to leave town and the publicist and his assistant had driven me to the airport and we were at the security line. I think I'd even put my bag on the belt and the publicist got a call saying that the jury was deliberating between me and a French filmmaker who had made a very small independent film that was also in Critics Week along with Clerks, And so they said, I can't leave town. So we got my bag back and we drove into town. They just said, there's a chance he's going to win. And if he wins, we need him here. So we drove back into town. And that night was the awards thing. I did not win the the prize, which is called the camera door, which is for the best first feature by somebody. But that's why I was at the awards ceremony. So Pulp Fiction wins. And uh, there was some sort of weird backlash against Pulp Fiction. There was a minority of people who didn't want it to win. Maybe it was because there was so much hype around the film and so much hype around Quentin. So anyway, he wins the award and he goes up on stage to make his acceptance speech. Pulp Fiction. And some woman in the back of the theater, you can bleep this, just started repeatedly saying, fuck Pulp Fiction, fuck Pulp Fiction. (laughs) And Quentin just, like, looks up at her and shoots at a bird, right? Gives her the middle finger. And then he goes on with his acceptance speech. You know, the vast majority of people were, were thrilled that it won. Somehow, I was the first person to see him after he won. Like, he was standing outside the theater in the hallway, not on the street. And I bumped into him and we talked for a while. But also, he was in a kind of daze because of winning. And he he was probably a little put off his game by that woman who was yelling against his movie. Back to
4: Webb. Nowadays, film criticism is very different than it used to be. I don't really know how to articulate it. It's like it used to be something that would steer people to the movies or not. It used to be a lot more harsh, too. Yeah. I love going back and reading the old Ebert or Pauline Kael reviews because first off, the writing's awesome. But uh, also, you get to see a movie through someone else's eyes that you
3: normally it's movies you love. And their reviews are timeless, yeah.
4: Yeah, they're timeless. Like, Pauline Kael wastes very few words. And if it's like Roger Ebert's reviews, like sometimes you want to see them just to see like, what did this person actually think about it? There's not much of that these days, which is a shame. Now it's podcasts, really.
3: Yeah, Howie was friends with Ebert for 45 years. Look, I partly became a critic because of Roger. When did you meet him?
1: I met him in the spring of 1970. He was in Boulder for an event on the University of Colorado campus. I remember exactly the moment where I met him because he was walking with another Chicago newspaper guy named Bill Braden. (laughs) Did you ever see... um, The Glenn Miller story with James Stewart?
3: Oh, no, no, but I know it it, it airs on TCM like once a month.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, there are scenes there on the University of Colorado campus on what's called Varsity Bridge. And I was in fact walking across Varsity Bridge and I saw this friend of mine you know, fellow graduate student who was from Chicago and she was walking with these two guys and she introduced me, one of them was Roger. And, you know, we became friends for the rest of his life. wow. And I was a graduate student in English and my focus was medieval literature. You know, I mean, I wasn't thinking about writing about film. I was thinking of writing about Beowulf. But, you know, so I have this you know, friendship starting with Roger. And the next year, Linda came to be a graduate student in Boulder. And she was in comparative literature, but she was mostly interested in cinema. And between the two of them, I just sort of took a turn. I finished my degree. I wrote a thesis on Chaucer. But, um, you know, I was already, you know, looking at film much more than I was looking at the
3: Middle Ages. Back to the interview with Professor Kelly. So, did you feel like it was kind of the beginning of a new movement in 90s indie cinema and your film was kind of in that, but this was like a few steps ahead of everybody? Yeah.
0: I mean, in the early 90s, the joke was you couldn't throw a stick without hitting an independent filmmaker. There was an independent film craze because of films like Sex, Life and Videotape and Reservoir Dogs. But then the whole bottom fell out of that because most of the films were not making money. And little by little, that craze, it, it was like a bubble. And then little by little, it became more, more sort of reasonable, but it made it harder to get films made. So it was a very brief period. It was maybe five years long, but you know, cult fiction was a big boost in that, but you know, within a few years, that stuff died down a little bit and it became harder to get my second film made.
3: So after can you finally fly home, you get, you, you are able to go through security. So what happens next with Sleep with Me?
0: Well, then we had to deal with MGM because they bought the movie. Oh, that's and good. they bought it for a nice price. I mean, the film made a profit. It didn't do great at the box office, but it made a profit because, you know, they had sold it in so many places. So the actors all got scale, nobody got above scale. Uh, all the above the line people, including the actors, we all took 5,000 for our contributions to the script. And then some people got another 5,000 because they were producing, and I got an additional 5,000 because I was directing. But it was 10,000 dollars, which is not a lot of money. And as somebody said to me, "You're going to get this movie made, you're going to spend a year on the festival circuit where you can't do anything else. You're not going to have enough money to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich if you don't have a job after this, because whatever happens, is going to take a long time." So I was fairly broke for a long time. You know, I was going to festivals with twenty dollars in my pocket. I was at the London Film Festival with like, you know, just a single twenty dollar bill, and then to a film festival in Ghent, and it was the same thing. And so, you know, I would have to wander around and hope that the distributors, because we had distributors at all these in, in all these countries, you know, that they would have somebody who was going to babysit me. And they did in every case. And so they would take me out to dinner and stuff like that. I had to walk everywhere because I didn't have any money for anything else. Then I wrote a script with Parker Posey. We wrote a script together for C.B. Dumille. But then they didn't make the film. And so then it was optioned by somebody else. And it was optioned by somebody else after that. But that didn't get made for various reasons. But it was really fun writing scripts with Parker Posey. We became really good friends after working on the movie together. So like when she would come to L.A. to do stuff, she would often stay with me. Yeah, it was a really fun friendship. But she's in New York. I haven't spoken to her in a while either. But I have a way of shedding friends because I don't put enough effort into the friendships. I don't know
3: why I do that.
0: But yeah, but that, all of that was really fun. Back to Webb.
3: I like Pulp Fiction a lot, but I think that it's, like, a movie that everybody knows, and so I think it's kind of interesting that this podcast kind of became about a movie that no one's known. It's just interesting because it's, like, they kind of started out at the same time, and then, like, I kind of think it's interesting because, like, I'm nostalgic for this era of filmmaking, and so it's kind of interesting to talk about how, like, it's gone, you know?
4: I mean, when we look at, like, a Soderbergh or a Tarantino who went from small productions for their first films, nowadays they're making, like, Marvel maybe second.
3: Yeah. and It's not sustainable because they don't get to stand out within the system. And then also it's, like, it's easier to shoot a movie now on your iPhone or, like, any camera and have it look good. But no one's gonna watch it in the same way as they did in the 90s. Yeah. And like Sundance is more accessible now with remote access due to the pandemic, which is cool. Like anyone in the country can watch the Sundance movie, but it's like Sundance doesn't really have the same cultural relevance as it used to. Like Rory Kelly talks about his friend calling him up from a payphone in Park City and saying, like, you got to get down here right now. There's this movie called El Mariachi, and they did it cheaply, and this is what we have to do. And he said he didn't have any money, but he flew out there, and then he saw El Mariachi, and then they went in pre-production on their low-budget movie.
4: When you see that someone like Soderbergh has made now two or three films with an iPhone, like, Mm -hmm. when someone tells me, oh, I don't have the right, like, camera for this movie, it's like, if one of the best filmmakers on earth can do it, um, we can figure this out. One, two, it's like, he gets shots with iPhones that you don't need permits with. And you can show parts of New York that have never been seen on film, but also like, it's just like, it's really inspiring and liberating to know that someone could have an iPhone and do that. And then like the Nick, he wrote, directed, and then had to use a pseudonym to edit it so that he would not get too many credits. Um, I don't know it's I'm not nostalgic for it. I just think that it's very liberating to know that some of these iconic films can be made on budget, lower than budget or yeah, like if you have a story to tell, there are ways to tell it. And Yeah. And like
3: the, El Mariachi is a good example. Like will people want to watch something like El Mariachi and take a chance on like a new voice now or are they just being spoon-fed the Marvel movies and the remakes and sequels and stuff, so they don't give a chance to the other stuff. Movies are more and more accessible these days, but it's harder and harder to get people to notice and want to seek them out. I'm not sure a filmmaker could come around today and make a movie for $7,000, like Robert Rodriguez, or make a movie on an iPhone and get noticed in the way Steven Soderbergh can, because he's already a famous and well-regarded director that arguably kicked off the indie movement back in 1989. Had you kept in touch with him at all after?
0: Yeah, we did. We used to end up at similar things. and we had a mutual friend, so we might be at the same party or the same barbecue or the same bar. But since then, I haven't really seen him. The thing about the kind of notoriety that he achieves is that you kind of have to shrink your world. Otherwise, there's just going to be too many people coming at you like we were at a bar once and people just come to the table and they want to talk to him i think he found it kind of annoying after a while i'm sure it was sort of thrilling at first but all these young men it was always young men who wanted to talk to him about how cool his movies were you know i think i would have done the same thing you kind of pick your group and stick with it and so yeah i haven't seen him for a long long time I have a beautiful picture of Quentin at the party scene, me and him talking. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, uh, they let me have it. I told the studio how much I loved that image. and So after they used it, they gave it to me.
2: What's the film about? What's it really about? What genre does it take? What, what, like a, it's like a, like the spine? The spine, like yeah. one sentence, like. No, I don't fucking boy bit? meets girl. I don't give a shit about that. Fuck boy meets girl. Fuck motorcycle movie. No, what is really being said? What's really being seen? That's what you're talking about. Because the whole idea, man, is subversion. You want subversion on a massive level. You know what one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? What? Talker. You had to be there as a high bar production. Created by High Bar. Today's episode, Pulp Fiction Wins the Palm Door at Cannes, was written and hosted by Adam Karp. Produced by Julia Thompson and Webb Bar. Story produced by Julia Thompson. Edit, sound mix, and engineering by Teeny Lieberson. Original score by Teeny Lieberson. Artwork created by Dylan Lathrop. Special thanks to our parents, friends, and chosen family. And most importantly, thank you to the artists who have inspired us because they, had to do it.